I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. You know, the, the hot world, the divided world, the increasingly authoritarian world, and how do we meet that? And how is it beginning to erode the normality of what the world we thought was that's fast changing? And where does that leave us? So people are feeling it everywhere. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and I have the pleasure of hanging out with Tani Sara, who you may have met before because we've done some lovely podcasts together. Welcome, Tani Sara. Thank you. So nice to be here. Greetings, Raghu. Yeah. (laughs) Every every time somebody says that, I think of Keith Richard when they said to him, Keith, so great to have you here. He said, great to be anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he would say that. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so, Tani Sara, <clears throat> excuse me, for those of you who don't know, has been involved um, in Buddhism as a Buddhist teacher and done some great, great work over many, many years. And... Uh, so, and she doesn't even know this, but it is the end. It, this is the end of 2022. And I thought, I want to do something that looks to, two th- did I say 22, 23? Actually, yeah, I was just trying to. <laughs> okay, we, yeah, we, some of 23 was a little not. rough, uh, shall we say, to say the least. We were just talking about uh, us being together at this retreat in Maui and the devastation of, from the Maui fires. There's been a lot in 23, I guess I wanted to forget about. But Mm. we're going into 24 and we wanted to, I wanted to just look at that a little bit in relation to what we can anticipate and at the same time what we can do in terms of our practice and practical perspective on how to relate with everything that's going on that's pretty a lot of it is very difficult, to say the least. So I thought, what? who better to do this with than Tani Sar? <laughs> so <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Meanwhile, yeah. just catching up a little bit about mm. uh, 
yeah, just tell me a little bit what you've been up to lately. And how, I, I'm most interested around, you know, your students and people that you're, um, you know, spending time with and, and how they are navigating and how they have navigated this this last year, which, you know, <clears throat> been tough. Well, I'm sort of, I've got, um, I'm involved in a number of different communities, both local to me, where I am. I'm in Sebastopol, Northern California. It's about an hour and a half north of San Francisco. Um, I also have connections into the community um, to some degree in the Dharma in UK, where I'm originally from, Mm. and South Africa, where I've worked for several decades. And... um, you know, also <clears throat> not only in the um, Dharma world, but I've also been now nearly a decade involved in the plant medicine world. And um, of course, that's a whole different kind of community, but a lot of interface with Dharma. Um, I think everyone is feeling it. Everyone is feeling this growing intensity, both in their personal lives and in the collective. And there's a a sort of process of making sense, I think, making sense of this moment on the planet. Um, And part of that for me is also being involved with activists and climate activists Mm. and um, reading the tea leaves of where people are, what's happening on that level. So... This is confluence of these extraordinary forces that are bringing to light in this moment uh, as the veils drop away, the depth of the illusions that we've built our world on, our civilization on, and what does that mean as those myths, if you like, civilizational myths, aren't holding up to the shifts that need to happen to enable us to live in a in a way that we have some kind of sustainable, more beautiful future that isn't a future that just devolves into the extraordinary levels of violence on this hotter, more divided world. We, of course, have this movement of increased fascism and authoritarianism that's being normalized in countries we never would have thought we'd we'd see that, like, for example, in my own home country of the UK, where they're literally arresting non-violent, peaceful, very peaceful protesters demonstrating for the climate in one way or another without due real process in court and imprisoning and Seriously? You know, if you, I didn't know this. Uh, well, people are very shocked about this, the authoritarianism, <laughs> the, the hijack. This, is a, this isn't really a government that we have anymore. We have a sort of a, a hijacked so-called government that's really serving an elite, the wealth of an elite and the agenda of an elite. And in that process, it requires the undoing of human rights, of workers' rights, of environmental protections. And this is happening at speed in the UK since the Brexit um, vote mm. actually enabled that hijack, really, and the and the undoing of demo, usual democratic judicial processes that actually sustain a sort of 
moral and value system which upholds the ability for us to live with decency and with dignity and sustaining humane value. So a lot of that is being eroded. And, you know, in a certain way, these these communities that I'm involved with, Dharma, whether it's plant medicine, whether it's, you know, there, there's a sort of bubble that we're in, spiritualized communities. We're in this bubble still in the Northern Hemisphere and the Northern world. We're... We're impacted, like you're talking about Maui, the fires, that the horror of that that we saw earlier last this year. It's nearly nearly, nearly last year, and we're nearly in that transitional moment, coming to the end of the year here, 2023. But just so much more. But somehow we bounce back and maintain this sense of normalizing. Um, our lifestyles that have been predicated on a world that's fast disappearing. And we haven't quite caught up to speed of where we need, how we need the curriculum that we're now in and how we need to adjust to that curriculum. So these are the sorts of conversations I'm trying to have with myself, firstly, <laughs> never mind yeah, anyone bro. else, but, yeah. but also with others and also leaders. What does this, in these communities, um, what does this mean for us? You know, um, how do we differentiate? Because people are very nervous in spiritual communities, nonprofit worlds of coming out too politically. And there's, of course, a historical bypass around that. You know, so to try and differentiate that political positioning is different. Well, there's an interface, but it can be different from taking a moral stance, you know, against massive violence that we're seeing in the Middle East right now, for example in Gaza in particular. So, you know, the, the hot world, the divided world, the increasingly authoritarian world, and how do we meet that? And how is it beginning to erode the normality of what the world we thought was that's fast changing? And where does that leave us? So people are feeling it everywhere, not, not just in those communities, but I think everyone is feeling it on the planet, actually. Yeah, I think the reality is that we are getting, in a very weird way, conditioned by and inured to all of this. Climate change, violence, wars, pestilence, all of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot. And we are getting inured to it. You know, it's just becoming part of the fabric where we we don't pause the way we paused when it first came out. Just think of the pandemic. I mean, right. I know plenty of people are still getting COVID and getting sick. Maybe it's, you know, if you're younger, it's just like a flu and so on. But there's they're reporting a thousand people a day are uh, are getting uh, are dying. Wow. A thousand. No, wow. not a day. I'm sorry. A week. Oh, that's, right. still but still, that's, that's still yeah. a lot. That's still a lot. Yeah, that's still a lot. Yeah. Um, so I think that that on its own is a, is a huge issue. You know, how we're mindfully, mindfully handling this, I think, is super important. I had this, uh, I just found this book or was sent to me. It's the mystical poet, poetry of Kabir. You know the oh, nice. the saying from the 16th century, 15th, 16th century. Yes. I think, yes. yeah. Uh, so this, if I remember correctly, 
which I pretty well do because I remember those those days with Neem Karoli Baba. But he was the one quote that he would quote of anybody was Kabir. Yeah. I particularly remember him quoting uh, about uh, walking through the marketplace, you know, not being pulled in any direction whatsoever, not being pulled by material, not being pulled pulled by the temples and the objects of worship and so on. But so I found this, I thought I'd read it because it it totally addresses what we were just talking about. Tell me, it's called illusion appropriately. Yeah. Tell me, my friend, how can I get rid of all this illusion? When I gave up trying, tying pretty bows around packages I still tied my pants up with a string. When I gave up tying up my pants, I still wore shirts that didn't fit. When I gave up my sexual longings, I found that I was angry all day. When I gave up my anger, I became even more greedy than before. Even when I was able to get rid of my greed, pride and vanity took its place. When the mind is empty and illusion is thrown away, it still hangs on to one thing. (laughs) Kabir says, listen to what I have to say. There are very few who find their way. It's kind of depressing, really, when you think about it. (laughs) Yes, there's very few that find their way. So, you know, I I think about the the reality of uh, us. As aspirants, shall we say, on the path. Yes. Seekers, however we want to characterize ourselves, that uh, we we can't be looking at the end. We can't be looking at, okay, uh, we see what's going on with climate change and we are going to take actions and then want then we want to see results because that's how we're oriented as humans, especially here in the West. So I, I really do believe we have to take all the actions that are necessary internally to do the kinds of things that we need to do as human beings, as citizens on this planet, so that there can be a future for next generation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, you know, so that requires some of what you teach I believe on a day-to-day basis, which is mindfulness, which, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that we get back from uh, people who we do retreats and courses with through Love, Serve, Remember Foundation around Ram Dass and and many of the other teachers that you and I have mutual friends. And um, they ask for the most basic, simple directives. Like, I can't sit. (laughs) I can't sit quietly even. And then I have a hell of a time with my mind if I should try and meditate. How about, let's address that. I think it's really, you know, it's a basic, basic, response that we get from people who maybe they're just starting out on the path but no there's people that have been meditating for years 
and they're still getting into uh, that uh, chasm of monkey mind. Well, I think you 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 sort of named one of the obstacles within the question itself, which is this idea of having a goal that we have to get to. You know, that we have an action and we're wanting to get to somewhere rather than we're actually entering a deep process, a collective process. And this isn't just me. I think also the way that we've approached the meditative awakening process is very much centered around the individuate the individual individuality, the heightened sense of individualism in mm. this culture of me doing this. And in a world that's more and more atomized and the enormity of what we're facing, there has to be a sense of collective. And I think one of the dynamics in this individualism and how mindfulness and dharma and meditation has historically been transmitted from the ancient lineages of Asia into the West. In the ancient lineages, it was really held very collectively. Often you're working in community, you're sitting together. So if you can't do it, there's, you know, other people holding that space, there's living together. You feel yourself as a sense of belonging. And I think what people are actually confronted with when they try and sit is this lack of connection and belonging and feeling a sense from that of being held and safety and then allowing the nervous system cat to 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 be recalibrated and aligned. Um, so there's a lot of difficulty in the whole approach. So I, I would say, firstly, like, you know, there's this line from, from the suttas which goes, Maga hatikilesa wa patunu patitamatang. So to, to translate that, which I think is a really, really important line, it means, Maga means the path, hata means to break up, kilesa means these obstructions. So the path breaks up. The path activity breaks up this instruction, the, the obstructions that you're talking about that people feel. And in that process, the second line, pata, the fruit, upati, the fruit of that process, the fruit of awakening arises, tamatang, which means according to nature, according to the Dharma. So this, one of the difficulties is this sense again of me doing this. The me trying to do this is never going to do it. <laughs> But if we understand that, in fact, what we're actually asked to do in the Dharma, in the meditation, is just to apply this in this moment, because this is the only moment really there is, this eternal moment, is to apply some medicine of the, of the path. So it might be just, can I just feel my feet on the ground? You know, lower the mm-hmm. bar rather than Rather yeah. than have the bar so people have the bar so high. And to realize, you know, to work with the the mind, the unfettered mind, the mind that hasn't been hasn't had any sense of containment in, in relationship to the practice of meditation, it's gonna need a lot of patience. So can I just maybe sit for ten minutes and take ten, count on my fingers? I mean, I still do this, you know, after fifty years of practice. I start very, very it's very in a way, what we're asked, what's happening is something very simple. It's to taste the natural state of your being here, which is always peaceful, always inviting, always opening and revelatory unto its own nature. What's complex is the way that the mind moves around that. 
So to do something simple like touch each finger and take mm-hmm. 10 deepening, slowing breaths. Maybe do it laying down if you can't sit up. Just find a place where you feel comfortable, where you feel supported. I often start with taking very deep, moderating the breath. This was taught by one of the great um, meditation masters of Thailand, Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who's no longer alive. He passed over in the 1950s, I think. But he mm. talked about, he was known as the Samadhi King of Thailand. Yeah. He, was a, he was a contemporary of Ajahn Chah, the forest school of Thailand, which produced the, these amazing um, meditation masters. And he would talk about moderating the breath. So you don't necessarily just sit, you know, like from your daily life. You go, you, you, you take a, a, a 10 minutes to change gears. Maybe you put on some beautiful music. Maybe you just lay down and take some moderating the breath. What I do is like deep, slow breaths, often through my mouth, and just feeling the breath energy with awareness suffuse the whole body, right? It's like a subtle, gentle pranayama. I'm not trying to do like a massive, I'm not doing Wim Hof, I'm not doing holotropic, (laughs) I'm not doing pranayama. I'm just laying there with some really cool, spiritual, beautiful music. And I take like a slow breath through my body and just feeling that the body starts to recalibrate the nervous system. And then some more liminal space starts to open as the body recalibrates. And then from there, you naturally start to feel a sense of connection, ground, and you can move from there. So I think it's just that people have an idea of what meditation is, particularly if you stay where they're starting. They have a, if they're start, when they're starting, they have a goal of where they think they should be, and that's already gonna set them up for struggle. But if you have the idea that I'm just receptive to how it is, I'm gonna be patient with how it is, I'm going to breathe through what is presenting itself to me and just feel the ground in the midst of that, even if it's just a little bit of sense of contact with the field of awareness within which everything is arising, that you're noticing as it passes and changing, even if it's walking and you just feel a step on the ground, one step after another, even making a cup of tea, you know, like just take something and just Mm. slow it down a bit. These are very profound shifts, actually. You like lower the bar and have small successes, and then you build on that. Otherwise, you feel a failure, and then you never do it again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Oh, boy. I like to think also, you know, that's really great grounding advice. You know, mm. not, not overreaching, not thinking you should be somewhere where you're not. None of those things. Mm-hmm. They don't really matter. What matters is is like, yeah, the feet on the ground. That's yeah. what matters. Yeah. I think it's these small steps and then that's the path activity in and of itself creates the conditions for what you are not in control of. We're not in control of the awakening process. That's like, as Ajahn Charles say, it's like the fruit ripening. It will fall in its own time. You can't like... You can't grow right. the flower, you know. The flower grows you. You can't cultivate the field for that flower. Right. Do you? I, I know you know who. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure you know who Roshi Bernie Glassman was. Yes, I do. Yes. So yes. he had a beautiful thing, not knowing. Yes. Right? Yes. And uh, I think that us, uh, all of us, developing a perspective from which to 
see how we can get into uh, the kind of internal change that would allow us to be more balanced on a day-to-day basis. And I think part of that perspective uh, certainly is the idea of not knowing. Yeah, I I, uh, I think that's really, uh, that's the ground of the meditative process. I mean, actually, if you unpack the word for wisdom in Sanskrit, which is prajna, it literally means before you know, a meaning before you know through the mind that separates out the sense of me knowing it, we might call separative consciousness, there's a me knowing it. <laughs> and that is an assumption that both have solidity and reality. And because we have a name for the it, like that's a tree, we think we know it. And so th- we know things through language, through description, through the cognitive process, but there's a whole other dimension of knowing, which is actually through the stripping away of what we think we know. And, you know, this is entering the field of awareness itself, which is boundaryless. It's it's beneath the cognitive frame. And that knowing is the knowing that is that intimately experiences directly what is. You know, may not have even language to, even about ourselves. We think we even know ourselves, you know, but we have a very limited frame that we look through of conditioning and narratives. This is what I am, but what what are we really? What is this breath? What is this experience I'm having, you know? So that not knowing is an invitation for this deep receptivity, inquiry, openness, investigation, and that's, that's really brings a lot of energy and ability to learn something, something that comes from perhaps this prajna, this deep intelligence, something that's not clear to us will then become revealed. You know, maybe we never knew that before, but in that open space, there's something new that becomes apparent to us. That's a very beautiful thing. We realize actually things are to be known, but not necessarily in the way we knew them before. And that I don't think you can talk about the not knowing without getting comfortable with uh, uncertainty. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And that the, the reality of uh, anitya, mm. <laughs> yes. you know, constant change. And how do we get friendly with that? Which, I think, again, this is part of uh, developing a perspective that allows us to go and be with ourselves internally in a peaceful way, be with ourselves in a developed way where you start to see changes, like not so reactive to our thoughts, not believing in our thoughts. Some of the most fundamental ways in which we live on a day-to-day basis and and are you know completely attached to to the reality that we think we are in and you know yeah yeah i think um change is a very profound gateway to see change is to lead to the change less you know like to realize what is you know what is knowing change what is that which knows change which is present to change so at first 
you know, the meditation, we're looking at the objects, if you like, the vipassana, to look at the nature of what is arising and passing, the nature, not so much the content, but the constructs constructs of the mind, that everything is subject to, you know, it was dawn and now it's dusk. I was happy and now there's sadness. There's, you know, there's hunger and then I ate and there's fullness. You know, there's constantly from the most coarse to the most subtle vibratory experience of sensation. So everything's in this flux. But that which knows, this is the the un the deathless jitta, if you like, the unchanging jitta heart mind itself. It's that that which is illuminating change is that changing. You know, this is like this is so this this deeper inquiry is what is changeless? This is the the Buddha's, what is deathless? This is the Buddha's inquiry. And it's our inquiry too. Because I think once we have a you know, and it's said in the Dharma, that's ever present, ever inviting, ever opening, ever sort of um, revealing itself to us, illuminating each moment. Once we rest more there, then the change, we're less sort of perhaps <coughs> battling with, with change itself. We can have a bit more of a, a spacious, peaceful relationship to the changing experience of the world you know yeah and when we talk about when we speak to the the reality of impermanence which is what we're speaking to we have to talk about to me one of the core issues that we find it very difficult to deal with as individuals and collectively uh fear Fear is really gets our attention. And today we have quite a bit of fear to go around for everybody. Um, but if you look at, like, if you t- look about, uh, if we talk about what's going on with environmental destruction and so on, and, you know, you see this manifestation which you realize that you as an individual are very much part of this manifestation. This isn't something you can blame on anybody. Yes, you can go after all the, you know, of course the, you know, you can be mad at all the profit making gigantic corp, you know, oil companies and whoever else, coal, all of it. You can go after all that blame. But I think if you, really realize that we as individuals have deep responsibility for everything that is going on now. And then you, I I see, I see in myself, you know, uh, fear may arise in, in terms of the reality of feeling completely um, at loggerheads with our ability to make the kind of individual change. And I'm not talking about recycling. <laughs> okay, I've done it. I got a recycling can. I'm talking about uh, just, again, the perspective that we have that uh, is is so skewed by the reality, in this case, of climate change. So It's so skewed by our own Again, I said earlier, we get inured to all of this. And it's, it's just, it's, it's a complete bypass that happens. 
So I think we, we do have to deal with fear, you know, absolutely on an individual and, uh, and collective basis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few different things you're, you're, you're capturing that are really big. Um, you know, f- fear is, I mean, there's certain fears that are actually not necessarily bad. <laughs> You know, like if you're driving off a cliff, if you're driving towards a cliff, you would have like the fear of going off that would help you change course, you know. So there's fears that can be awakening. um, And there's also just the habit of fear, the uninvestigated nature of fear, which again, once you get an understanding of how to work with the states of mind that come up, the obstructions, and rather than see them as obstructions, you see them as... as, um, as ways of really um, sharpening our wisdom and our compassion, so they're necessary parts of the path, then fear is something Mm. one can engage with and work with. But the piece I would challenge in what you're saying is that, yes, of course we have to make an individual change, but we don't have the power of governments and corporations and billionaires <laughs> who are increasingly controlling the destiny of the planet. And, you know, what we do have is a lack of wise leadership. And so while we can make, I can make the changes, I can get an electric car, I can eat vegan, I can do all these things, you know, which are going to help. And I think, you know, as much as everyone can, can, can do that. But we actually... You know, we just saw at COP28 that the whole process of the um, of that, which is a you know the meeting of the of of the different um, countries around the world to engage this this mm. this absolutely critical emergency that we're plunging into. We've passed seven tipping points. You know, they're irreversible, which means that we're going to be very soon. In an, in an increasingly, you know, Maui type situation that you just experienced where people had a few minutes to decide, do they run for their lives or do they stay in their car? I was reading about, you know, um, someone that with the friends and he, he had been a, he was a military person. So he understood, I think, much more quickly what was happening. And he was encouraging mm-hmm. people in the car to run and they felt safer to stay in the car. Well, they never, he never saw them again, but he ran. You know, the, I mean, people don't understand that once you're in these tipping points, you don't have the luxury we have now to make these, you know, to talk about these things, to decide you're actually in the, the least optimum place that you can be because you're activated by real fear and terror. Your brain is deregulating and you don't know how to respond. You're frozen. So, you know, these are the things that in the spiritual and Dharma community, we can actually start to practice for this world we're going into and also practice what it is to challenge those that have massive power to have a moral backbone, to have a moral soul and to respond accordingly. So in the COP21, that was completely hijacked by the fossil fuel industries. And Mm. they decided, well, we'll carry on extracting fossil fuels, which needs to stop immediately. But, you know, we'll put up a few more windmills. But if you don't actually, all of that investment, and we're talking of trillions of dollars, which we, you and I don't have control over that as an individual, you know, governments have control, petro empires have control, billionaires have control. They have the power. They have real power. You know, if you, if you direct that power to completely invest 
radically invest. You know, you could mobilize a war effort, say in the Second World War, mobilize a massive war effort very quickly. In COVID, managed to shut down everything very quickly. There mm. could be a massive mobilization, which is what we need to save our planet, to save, well, a livable environment. And this has to happen in this decade. Beyond this decade, we're we're beyond. We're just dealing with crisis management, increase, and in, you know more more wars, more starvation, more migrations, and none of us will escape that. So this is a very critical moment. Yeah. you can't put that on the individual. The, yes, the indiv- What we can do, I mean, we have no wise leadership at this level. Really, let's look at it. I mean, those that do are coming out, like you know, the General Secretary of the UN, um, Antonio Guterres, and so on. They're coming out. They're saying the right things, but they have no power. You know, so they have no power to do anything. So we're like, you know, it's going to be up to us as citizens <laughs> to to actually do what's happening now around the world in, in response to Gaza. People are out on the streets. They're actually using their power to mobilize, to demonstrate, to to call on governments to actually call, it hasn't been sex, successful in the US because of the dynamic of between the US and Israel, but around the world to call on a ceasefire. But it's showing the power of citizens together. And I think this is what we have to feel into. Mm. It has to be a collaborative, collective mm. effort, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I do think that, uh, and Ram Dass used to say this all the time, that you have to work on yourself before you can even think that you can have a voice that's going to make have any possibility to dent, to make a change. You have to do it both at the same time. You I would say to, both at the same time. We can't wait till we're perfect. No, no, I mean, no, I think, absolutely. I mean, we can't wait for that. We might, you know, like everyday people can do something. You know, it's true, a a shift of consciousness underwrites the systemic shifts we need. You know, so we're all working on the shift of consciousness, but we have to also know how do we then apply that? You know, how do we... So right now I'm just inviting um, Dharma practitioners into this conversation through the platform that we host. You know, it's like there's this sort of sense where we want to be neutral because we don't want to alienate anyone. It's like, well, you can take a moral stance you know and call out call out these issues without necessarily i mean you're not going to include everyone but you're you're you know this is this is what spiritual change makers have done historically through time they take a stance but they take it from a very deep spiritual place so they're not personally excluding people they're including everyone in the circle of love and compassion but they're saying this needs to be protected, you know? Yeah. I mean, we saw that demonstrated with with Maharaji. There were moments when he would just, like, kick people out or go, no, or, I mean, this fierceness. I mean, I've seen it in Ramdas. You know, there were moments when he would come over pretty fierce. You know, I remember at a talk in London that, you know, he was he was pretty strong about things, and you know, it wasn't he wasn't a pushover. It wasn't like mm. love. Love means I accept everything. It was like no, this behavior. Even the Buddha, the Buddha got out in front of wars and tried to stop them. He tried to stop three times the slaughter of his own people, the Sakyan clan. And there's a whole backstory. It was a revenge story, like we're seeing now. It was a revenge story 
where the Collians came and they wanted to wipe out his clan. And he got out there three times and tried to stop this army. He literally put his body in front of them and was negotiating and he couldn't stop them, actually. Mm -hmm. But the point was he tried. He knew, in the end, he knew that karma was too strong. But that didn't mean to say he didn't do it. And I think this is a great example. I mean, there are moments that he did succeed, but, you know, not in every situation, for sure. But it doesn't mean to say that we can't try. So I think this is a good um, precedent for us to, we don't have to be perfect. We just try, you know, Mm. try to do what we can. I met somebody recently did a podcast named Susan Murphy. Uh, She's from Australia. I'm not sure she's a Zen person and uh, wrote a really great book that was really the uh, addressing climate issues, the environment uh, and, and really um, cross-referencing that to our own internal climate, shall we say. Right. I just want to read one. This, this address is pretty, much what we're talking about. She says, demented human-created systems like those now devouring the life of the earth need to come apart so we can discover the true ground of being here where we are. The human being safely tucked into the small self needs to fall away freely in order to find the original, unimpeded self that is shared with all beings. There is a consonance between these two matters that compels close attention, and rightfully so, because self-relinquishment opens a wider perspective at every point. Beautifully said. Yeah. Well said? Yeah, very well said, yeah. I think that's what's um, happening at this time with the intensity and the sense of free fall, it's a bit like, sometimes I think of it like a collective shamanic journey when what you've known yourself to be, the shapes that you're in are falling apart. It's like an ego death. It's very terrifying because you don't know where you'll land. And in a way, we're sort of at that moment. And in that process, all the shadow issues are rele- released, all the old ancestral unhealed wounds emerge and it's you know it's it's it is what we're looking at now you know it's 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 terrifying it's overwhelming it's it feels really um you know it's deeply painful it brings up everything you can feel all at once that's difficult to feel and yet at the same time it is a it is a portal that we're going through a portal to understanding ourselves in a whole different way that we're not really an individual that is a, that is the illusion really that the illusion of individuality is not that it's not has its own realness, but in fact we are part of a Gaian cosmology, a deep web of interconnected sacredness of life itself. And when we experience and know ourselves in that way, then it's a whole different ball game. We're not alone. Mm-hmm. You know, we're working together with all the planetary elements, all the beings, all the ancestors everyone working, you know. So um, that's the shift. It's not so far away. And I think that is the spiritual workers, light workers, healers, and so on, awakeners and influencers in that in those realms. You know, I think the onus is in us to try and help people make sense of this moment and give a vision for this process 
So it's not just a, we're not just collapsing and deregulating and devolving into, um, you know, into the scary scenario that current world leaders are normalizing, as you say, you know, like, yeah. you know, let just slog it out. Whoever's the most violent, whoever has the most weapons wins the day. You know, that's kind of where it's going to go if we don't find, if we don't actually say, let's create a new story together. Let's create a more hopeful vision together and let's work for that. Yeah. Let's create a new story together. That's uh, a good a good way to uh, to really move to an insightful um, life, a life in which we're really looking inside ourselves. I just did a an audio book with my friend Duncan Trussell called "From the Movie of Me to the Movie of We." Oh, beautiful. Which is exactly about, okay, how do you create a quote-unquote new story? Right. right. And we used ourselves as examples of the kind of, um, the way in which we were brought up into this world. Well, as soon as you get a name, oh, I'm a separate something. Right. right? Oh, uh, better protect that separate something from the vicissitudes of, of what goes on. And then you, you know, you have wonderful habitual patterns that get created. You have neurotic tendencies, which you embellish, you know, uh, believing in everything that every thought that you have, believing in that story of who you think other you are. That's why Ramdas was so great around identity, particularly really pointing people out, uh, pointing to people and how we do, uh, use that identity and role, and it overwhelms absolutely everything, you know. And so then through this process, we start to realize, okay, we are, that's again back to perspective, which we were talking about. We start to understand how we are identifying in a certain way, and that is causing pain, period, mm. and suffering. Yeah. And so we look for a way out, and then that's creating a new story mm. because ultimately, of course, all of it has to just go out through the wash, whatever concept, you know, not knowing, living with uncertainty. These are things that, you know, really help us to navigate the, the day-to-day world. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. And th- that movie of we, how do we get there is, uh, was prime. Actually, in the end, um, the end of uh, the book, it's an audio book, uh, movie of me, yeah, movieofme.com uh, is, is where you can find out about it. I'm doing a little commercial for myself yeah. in the middle of this thing. Um, <laughs> but the last piece is uh, I took an excerpt. We took an excerpt from a talk that Ramdas gave. And this became for me the transformational point that one could reach going from the movie of me to the movie of we. And it was all about compassion, of course, and generosity. And he told this fantastic story of a woman at at one of his talks and they were talking about compassion and she was talking about how every 
day, she'd go to the store, the bank, whatever errands she was doing, and pass by a homeless person and would give him a buck or two, whatever, and acknowledge, you know, they'd have a back and forth and she'd move on. This went on for quite some time. And she started to think, wow, why can't, can I not provide him a place in my home where he could be warm? And and as soon as that happened, that thought came in her head. She was like, full of fear. She, you know, she was fear. She had fear about how that would take over her life. And the separateness that she felt on, you know, on a daily basis would, would uh, dissipate. And it's too unknown. It was too, the mystery of it is just too unfathomable for her to even take that next step, you know? And so he, he talked about that in a, just an extraordinarily beautiful way. But yeah, generosity and compassion. Mm. How do we get there? How do we get there collectively is probably a more important question. Well, I think at this stage, we know probably a lot of the answers, really. We've read, read all the books. I think, really, it's this this unknowing and listening into the, the knowing heart, the present heart, the intuitive heart, and allowing that to guide us. You know, so I think that's what Ajahn Chah called the living dharma. It's not the things we perhaps... You know, we can have an idea of what it means to be compassionate and try and live that out, but it's not necessarily really in relationship to what's really needed. And one can get into some really complex dynamics around that. Like, for example, when we lived in South Africa and a very, just as apartheid fell, we were in a, in a highly um, in unequal dynamic where the the white apartheid system was still operating in the deep rural area where we were working. So, other, so although there was political liberation, there wasn't economic equity or resource equity and so on. And I think, you know, at first when you come from the Northern Hemisphere and you have more privilege, you sort of start to feel like you just, you know, you feel that there's a lot of guilt and wanting to try and help everyone and it becomes untenable, you know, very, very quickly. And then you have to really think more collectively and communally and, and wisely what, what will really help, you know, because it's not that you don't want to share or be generous, but, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, and you can be very generous to say, people that you know directly that living on this on the road but then you can create which happened for us jealousies with other people <laughs> you can land up getting them you know um getting them sort of in dangerous situations where people want to take them out because they're getting something more than someone else and so mm -hmm. there's just lots and lots of complexities in these situations and you know in the end we what we did is started um community community engagement projects that empowered local people and got them waged, got them, in, you know, uh, skilled up and able to respond directly. So these sorts of things, are, there's not like we have to recreate the wheel of what is compassionate action. It's, it's, it's just plugging into how do we do that without activating a sort of Western savior mode or, a, you know, yeah. The, yeah. and actually doing it in equitable ways. And some of this, some really lead, really interesting leading edge projects around that happening where people are looking at 
very different ways of engaging community engagement and helping and and um, redistribution of wealth and so on. All of these, I think there's a lot of people working on these fronts. It's not that the wisdom isn't there. It's really how do we... How do we align with that? How do we kind of find out about those? How do we explore the application of that in our personal and collective and community, communal spheres, you know? So, but these are very profound questions, you know? And again, yeah. it's it's more helpful sometimes if we move out of me having to figure it out to into the collective, you know, how do yeah. we figure this out? You know, yeah. how, do, how would you do this? How do you think about this? What do you know? Who's doing this, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, that's where uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, the coming Buddha is the Sangha. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that's... Maitreya. That feels really true. That's It's not, we don't have to, we're not going to hold it all, but collectively we all hold a piece. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well... We're kind of at the end of our time together. I wanted I want to go back though, and I have another uh, of Kabir's poems. Oh, who's translate? Who's what translation are you using? Just out of interest. Thomas Rain Crow. Uh, right. You're familiar with him? No. Uh, so it's very uh, modern, hmm. obviously, hmm. Uh, but I like it. So this one's called. So we had illusion that mm. we opened up with. Mm. And this one's called Faith that we're going to close with. Where are you looking for me? I am with you, my friend. Not in prayers or meditations, not in fasting, not in yoga postures, not in renunciation, not in New Age books or even in the body, and not even in infinite space, not in the womb of nature, not in the breath inside the breath. So seek and search sincerely. It will only take you a second. Kabir says, listen to what I say. Where your trust resides, it is there that you will find your God. Mm, that's beautiful. That to me is the greatest. Mm. Uh, I don't know how much we have talked about it when Ramdas was alive and retreats and the Mm. And the continuation of the retreats and courses and everything else we do, that always is there. That trust mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. is there. I mean, of course, the funniest thing, uh, one day I was with uh, uh, in Hawaii at a retreat. I was up on stage with Rondas, just a couple of people, and we were – somehow trust came up. Mm. And I said, Ramdas, when I first met you, and you just completely – Engaged me eye to eye. I had, uh, a, there wasn't any Richard Alpert and there wasn't any Ramdas. There was mm. just this pool mm. of, of absolute feeling of home kind of thing. And, uh, and then deep trust, like I hadn't felt before. Mm. And maybe it was a baby with mother and all that, mm. but a very, very deep trust. So I said, Ramdas, what was, what was your first experience of that kind of deep trust? And he looked out at the audience and he said, and me, and he went, mushrooms, mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that will do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. But yeah, trust, it's, it's all in that word, though, you yeah. know, because once yeah. you have that, then intuition happens and then yeah. you really can make friends. In my mind, you can make friends with uncertainty, with, mm-hmm. with the mystery, as Roshi Halifax likes to term yeah. it all. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Right Thank on. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank Anita. you so much, Raghu. Yeah. This has been yeah. great. Yeah. Um, we'll have to do it again. We'll make sure in the show notes also that people can connect with you. And, uh, yeah. It cool. was too long. It was too long. long. Yeah, too long. But it's so good to see you and connect with uh, this lineage. It's been so meaningful to me and Kitty Sara and myself. And yeah, Mm. yeah, uh, all blessings for the new year, Raghu, and for your good health and for success at all you're doing. Yes. And to everybody, that same message may Mm -hmm. we all uh, be peaceful and happy going into next year and do the things that we've been talking about on this podcast. Mm. to transform as whatever we can in mm. ourselves and around ourselves. Beautiful. We'll see Thanks. you next time on Be Here Now Network, Mind Rolling. Ram Ram. Ram Ram.